By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam Young from Adam Young Golf. So we are up to episode 29. We're almost at 30 already. These things are flying by, Adam. They are, yeah. That's that's almost half, that was over half a year. I was looking at the map of our listeners. We have listeners on every continent except Antarctica. So right. we're doing we're doing all right. We got people from all over the world tuning in. So we... Deeply appreciate all of you, all of your feedback, your questions. And today, I'm excited about every episode, but <laughs> today I, I'm like super excited because we're going to be talking golf equipment and I have my very close dear friend, Woody Lashen, joining us. Woody, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to, to chat with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a lot of great stuff. One of the reasons Adam and myself wanted to bring Woody on is that I don't think there's a lot of... I mean, there's some, there's more great information about golf clubs than ever, but I still think a lot of golfers are kind of flying blind over what equipment can and can't do for you. So Woody has agreed to come on when he has time to kind of talk through different parts of club fitting and golf equipment and in an effort to educate everyone. So Woody, why don't you give us a brief introduction of who you are and what you do? I'm a legend in my own mind, John. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's a great start. <laughs> so uh, I'm the co-owner of Pete's Golf. We're located in Mineola, New York. We're in business since 1979. I started caddying when I was 13, and I started working for my now partner when I was 16. Played college golf, had a scholarship. I actually wanted to join the PGA back in the day. They wanted nothing to do with club fitting. They wanted nothing to do with guys with club building. And they certainly wanted nothing to do with anyone that was off course. 
And, uh, you know, we had to forge our own way as far as doing club fitting. We had to learn it all on our own. There was no one to teach us technologies that came along, launch monitors, EI curves, shafts, nobody to teach us anything. We had to learn it all on our own. And I always tell people, uh, I have a thirst for knowledge. I want to get better. I think that when you go to any professional, whatever trade they are, they tell you they know everything, I, I kind of run. <laughs> when they tell you that I'm always learning and I'm trying to get better at my craft, I'm trying to learn more, that's the, the kind of professional that I, I want to go to. That's who I strive to be. I don't believe that I know everything. I know a little bit. I'm always trying to learn more. I'm very passionate about the game. Try to play you know, at a, at a pretty reasonable level myself, competitive-wise. We've been doing club fitting since long before there was a launch monitor or... I mean, I remember doing lie when you we would have someone stand at a dress and put a uh, business card under their their iron at a dress to see, you know, oh, is it sit the toe two up or the toe two down, you know. I don't mean to date you, but you've been doing this since like the late seventies, early eighties, correct? Yeah, nineteen eighty two, I say, okay. is when I started. All right, so you, you've seen it all at this point. I don't know if I've seen it all. Well, yeah, I've seen some. <laughs> well, to everyone listening, Woody's probably one of the more humble people I've ever met in my life. If you trust my opinion on golf-related matters, I want you to have complete trust in him. He is the co-owner of Pete's Golf. They are recognized as some of the top club fitters in the industry by pretty much every golf media company. Every single OEM flies out the Pete's Golf team to meet with their engineers. They want to know what they think about club design, that they respect their opinion so much. So, And I'll give them a quick plug. Anyone who's in the New York metro region go see them. They're the best. You'd get a better than tour club van experience because you're going to get thousands of options of, of clubs and everything you could choose from. And everyone over there, Pete Mikowski, Sonny Burgo, Kirk Agori, Ono, Rob LaRosa, they're all great guys. They're honest. And again, they're the, amongst the most knowledgeable in the industry about club fitting. So I'm glad to have Woody on board. And he's been my personal club fitter for years. I believe 12 of my, you don't have all 14 of my clubs, Woody. You have 12 of them. Only two of them you didn't fit me for. I'm sorry about Th that. Those two must not work. I don't know. My putter's been, my putter's <laughs> been real hot lately. <laughs> so in this episode, I figured we'd start off with the big dog. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about drivers and hopefully educate everyone about the different variables involved. It'll be a club fitting discussion. It'll be some physics and engineering. Adam, are you excited about this? Do you know a lot about the driver equipment scenario? I know you know how to hit the ball properly, but how's your equipment knowledge? The stuff that interests me is the physics of ball flight, you know, launch, spin rate, ball speed. So I know about that kind of stuff, but I, I honestly, I don't really delve into club fitting too much. It's not an area. It's, it's an area I'll say I'm happy to delegate to someone else whenever people ask me about it. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to delegate it to Woody. I talk about a little bit about that, John, because I think it's really important. There's a lot of golf professionals in the industry and we're like doctors, but you specialize in something. I'm not going to go to someone who's going to operate on my knee if my elbow hurts or if I've got cancer, I'm not going to someone who works on eyes. They might know a little bit about it, and they should certainly because they're medically trained. You know, I need to know a little bit about the golf swing, probably more than I let on, but that's not my specialty. And so I'm never going to give a lesson. It's not what I want to do. Yeah, that's how I see it as well. I like to I like to think that there are people out there who know just as much about equipment as I know about the golf swing and, and improving golfers from that perspective. I never 
have any aspirations of knowing as much as you about, about this kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm always trying to learn it, just trying to get as much information out of you as possible. You know, I, I want to be dangerous with this, but I know that you're the expert in this field. Let's start diving into it. I, I think Woody and I have had this conversation a million times separately. I've kind of been your apprentice over the last five or six years to suck up a little bit of your knowledge. Let's start with what do you think are, are the biggest myths or misconceptions amongst the golf consumer about drivers? If you had to think of one that like sticks out in your head, what do you think they get wrong? I've done my research. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> when someone says to me they've done their research, to me, the problem is that they've read marketing materials because every manufacturer that's out there, it doesn't matter which one, every OEM, the only information you're ever going to get is from the marketing side of the company. You're never going to get the information from the guys that designed it. They don't want those guys talking to the public. Quite honestly, I don't really blame them. They're in business of selling golf clubs, but I'm in the business of trying to help people play better golf. So when someone says to me, I've done my research, I'm like, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> There's no independent, true independent tester. And every golfer is an individual, right? So my job is part scientist, part artist. So I need to understand the science of how equipment works. I need to understand why it works and what it does. However, you put that science in an artist's hands and they're all going to paint a little differently with it. So I've got to look at how are they painting? What are they swing? How are they swinging the golf club? And what does the science say behind it? And when they've been kind of skewered to, I want to buy brand X because it's low spin. Well, low spin for whom? And what do you do? So you're telling me that all the people on the Golf Works forums are not club fitting experts? Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I know nothing. Uh, I didn't mean to take a dig at them, but that's kind of like the de facto. I've cruised around some of the forums online where people argue over equipment stuff. It's entertaining to say the least. So hopefully we'll give some straight stories. One thing about Woody that I can tell you is that he is brand agnostic. I've personally walked into a fitting. I remember... When I uh, was getting my irons done, I was kind of looking for pings and we tried something else. So rest assured, he will give you the straight story without any of the marketing fluff. I think some people don't understand like what are, and again, this is variable for each golfer. Each golfer is unique. But overall, if someone went from a driver that like was not the right club for them to one that was fitted properly... What's like a reasonable gain, a tangible gain that someone could expect on the golf course? What have you seen in some of your recent fittings where someone walked out and was like, oh, I'm, I'm very happy with that? Guy I worked with today basically never hit his driver because he couldn't hit it at all. And we had him hitting, hitting a driver this afternoon and he was just, he couldn't believe how. He, he's like, no, I can't, I don't get the driver in the air. I don't, I can't hit a driver. Well, the driver he was using was so wrong for him. I mean, he probably gained 40 yards, but I think that's the the outlier. Sure. The biggest thing about a fitting, first of all, is you have to talk to the golfer and figure out what they are doing, what they perceive they're doing, and what they perceive they want out of a fitting. And I think that's very different for every player. And so before we hit golf ball one, I'm going to talk to my client, and I'm going to find out a little bit about them. How long are they playing? How often do they play? Do they work with a coach? Do they practice? What are their tendencies right now? We ask handicap or average score, but the reality is that 
as you well know, that's not really necessarily relevant to how they might hit the hit the driver. I have a guy I know he's a five handicap. He's a horrible driver of the golf ball. You might have someone who's a 20 handicap and they drive the ball fantastic. So it's all relative to what that player's doing, how they do it, what they think happens. And then, so once we've had that discussion and that discussion, I would say could last five minutes, could last 15 minutes, depends on the player. If they're working with a coach, I want to find out what the coach is having them do. I want to know what the coach thinks the flaws are. If they're not, and a lot of players say, listen, I'm not taking lessons. It's not what I'm doing. Okay, you're playing a game that you want to play. You're not going to play it for a living. You're playing it for, for fun. So we want to make sure we give you the max benefit for you. Another player might come along and say, listen, I'm taking lessons, and we're not going to do any Band-Aids with that person maybe because they really want to get to a certain level, and you don't want to do something to stifle that growth. The second thing we, we do is you got a baseline what someone's driver is. I, I think it's very important to understand in the golf industry, there are no standards. So when I say stiff, I don't know what that means, reality. is I don't know what stiff means. I don't know what regular means because I could give you five shafts that all say stiff and one is really stiff and one is extremely soft. We're going to get into that later on. Don't jump the gun on the shafts, but I've seen, I mean, I could tell anecdotally working with you over the years, my most recent change, I gained 20 yards and was hitting it straighter with the change in, in the shaft and the head that we did. So I've mentioned this in other episodes where I will play with golfers, whether it's in tournaments or, or regular rounds. And even last week I was playing in a member guest and my partner, I could see he was like hitting his driver. And it was like ballooning in the air and spinning too much. And he probably swung much faster than me, but I was hitting it by him. And I said, like, you got the wrong driver. That's an example of someone who's a really good golfer who probably, you know, if I had sent them to you or someone else at Pete's Golf, you would have gotten the right setup in his hands and, and probably would have easily gained 10 to 20 yards. So I think there's all these golfers out there that, you know, have bought stuff off the rack. They like certain brands. They are a Titleist guy or tailor-made person, and they just kind of default to that stuff. So yeah, let's get into, Adam, I'm sorry, I'm like talking over you here. Do you have any questions yet for Woody? With looking at their tendencies, the players' tendencies in the initial stage, what are the important data points that you, you're you looking at? Well, I want to know what their tempo is. I want to know where they're striking the ball on the face of the golf club. I want to know what they think. So a guy comes in and says, I always miss right. And he's got a swing that should produce a hook. Hmm. Once he starts hitting the golf balls, I'm like, you always miss right. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid of missing left. Ah, okay. That's why you're swinging that way. It's important, Adam. It's, it's different for every player because player A thinks he hits the ball high and he does not. And player B thinks that he doesn't get any roll and it has nothing to do with too much spin. It has to do with poor contact because when he makes good contact, he doesn't spin it too much. So it's very player specific what I might look at. I love how you're going into the mindset as well and asking them psychological questions. I think that's something that in my coaching as well, if, for example, I have a beginner who's hitting top, 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 and I ask them, what are you trying to do? In many cases, they come back and they think that touching the ground is a bad thing. They don't, you know, I've had many lady golfers who say, well, I don't want to damage the turf. 
And it's like, well, no wonder you're top, why you're topping it. <laughs> so, you know, just delving into those things or like you just said about not wanting to miss left. That was perfect for me today. If, you know, I played golf earlier and most of my drives missed on the right side. But if you were to dig into my psychology, I was doing everything I could that day not to miss left because the prior round I'd missed the majority of shots left. So you can't just look at trackman numbers really on their own. You have to get into their brain a little bit as well in, in both coaching and obviously equipment fitting. You know, it's so interesting you say that I can't tell you how many players have sent me data. Oh, I can't interpret that data. I don't I didn't see you swing. I didn't talk to you. I don't know what you're doing. You look at data, trackman data, right? I'm a foresight guy. I like camera data, but because I like measurements versus over. Well, I go, we could get into our that that a different. I've got, worry, a, Adam, I've got a GC Adam, quad Adam, as well. Yeah, you're in you're in you're in safe territory. He's a <laughs> yeah. GC quad guy. Yeah, I want to know strike location, right? So someone tells I'm spinning it like crazy. Well, where are they hitting the ball in the face? They're hitting the ball low on the face, and they're it's spinning like crazy. Way more probably strike location than it is shaft or head where if someone's hitting the ball in the right spot proper spot and they're spinning it way too much that's a t more of a textbook condition versus a lot of players i always spin it too much well i don't know any driver when you hit it 15 millimeters low on the face every time that's not going to spin i can make it better but i can't make it perfect because if you're hitting four degrees down in your driver you're not going to hit it the same way as if you're hitting four degrees up on your driver so Let's go into, I mean, you and I have discussed this a million times. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you believe that the driver head is the most important thing to get correct for a golfer who's looking to you know, get into a new driver that's hopefully better for them. Absolutely. I've seen firsthand with my tendencies and the stuff we've done with different manufacturers and lofts and the wildly different ball flights they can produce. So we don't have unlimited time, but why don't we start with like the greatest hits of what makes a driver head important? What's top of the list for you in terms of the driver head? What are you looking for first to get right? Again, it's player specific. So let's say, for example, we've got a player that hits the ball all over the face. I'm going to be much more interested in that player in stability. I want higher MOI. Okay. I've got another player that hits the ball in the center every time and they are spinning it like crazy. I need as low a center of gravity as possible to keep that spin down. I've got another player that every single time they leave the face open, they have a great path and leave the face open. I need to CG more towards the heel. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, not always, but maybe. I've got someone who's closes the face all the time. I might be talking to one of those guys right now. Maybe I need the center of gravity more towards the, the toe of the golf club. Where's your miss? I've got a player that hits the ball every single time in the toe of the golf club. I want a club that's going to perform the best for that strike. I've got someone whose strike is in the heel of the golf club. I need something that's best for that. We've got a, I've got a lot of good players that use what we're going to go on called draw bias equipment because they hit the ball in the heel of the golf club on a regular basis. That's where their shot is, and they want to get maximum performance out of that shot. So let's talk about center of gravity for someone who really doesn't know what it is or how it impacts you know ball flight i mean you would say that every manufacturer has trade-offs they have to make with center of gravity where they're placing it and that's why all drivers are different so why don't you just educate people you know <laughs> as quickly as we can about what center of gravity is every driver has really has one center of gravity it's floating around somewhere in the head 
I think the easiest way for the average golfer to understand is to look at the face of the club from the sole to the top. All right. That's going to be one plane for your center of gravity from the toe to the heel. That's another plane from your center of gravity. And then if you flip the driver down and address and you look from the face to the back of the golf club, somewhere in between there is going to be another center of gravity. And if you plot all those three together, that's where your center of gravity is floating around in your head. If I put my engineering hat on, if I'm trying to design the world's greatest driver, I would like my center of gravity on that, let's call that from the sole to the top line. I want it to be as low as possible. And what will that do? Well, that's going to make the driver A, more forgiving and B, lower spinning. Okay. Which would you say is what most people, not all, but a lot of golfers need help in that department? Correct. Now, if I look at from toe to heel, the player dependent, right? I might want that to be in the center. I want to move that towards the heel. If someone is striking the ball on the heel, I might want to move that ball on the toe. If someone's striking the ball on the toe, or if someone leaves the face open, I might want that center of gravity towards the heel so it will help the club face rotate more closed. Or if someone tends to over-rotate the face, I might want to move that center of gravity out towards the toe so that the club rotates less. Very player-specific. Here's a question I have for you. So moving the weights from the toe to the heel, you just mentioned that it changes the closing of the face. So I've always wondered, does that... Obviously, it affects where the sweet spot is as well, slightly. So you're changing gear effect, aren't you? Correct. Correct. I prefer to not do that as a Band-Aid. Right. Every player is different. It's player-specific here. If, say you move the, the weight more towards the heel, then anything struck on the center of the face is effectively going to be more have more toe gearing, right? Correct. Correct. By moving the weights more towards the heel, you're producing a more draw bias driver. Is that right? Well, if it's hitting the center of the golf club. If you're hitting the, answer, the center. Yes. How much of the change in direction is a result of gear effect versus changing how the club face rotates into impact? You know, whether you present it more closed or is that even answerable? <laughs> uh, it's not answerable because it's, it's very different player specific. So, for example, Adam, in theory, let's say I give you, who hooks it, a more heel center of gravity golf club. In theory, that should go more left. However, you are not a robot. You are an individual. And so you take a swing with it, and you hit one shot, and it goes left. And you go, oh. Now, you might hit that driver way more to the right because you're holding on and not letting it release mm -hmm. because it wants to go left, and you don't want it to go left. Yeah, I, I would be one of the toughest people to fit because I adapt almost instantly to whatever because <laughs> i had to as an instructor you know i'd be demonstrating i wouldn't have a club so i'd pick up a ladies club and, and hit a few shots and depending on what the first one did i'd adapt for it so yeah i'd be a tough one to fit but guys like you when you do a fitting it's one shot mm -hmm. you can't hit multiple shots one shot change one shot change because you'll adapt to it and i always tell people that the good player is the hardest one for me to help they're the ones who are breaking the door down to try and find anything that can help them with one shot every 10 rounds. But they're the hardest ones to help because they can make anything work. I use Mickelson as my example. Mickelson can take any right-handed club, turn around lefty, and hit the best shot you've ever seen. The more talent you have, the more you can overcome having the wrong equipment. I like to use Mickelson because he's an equipment nut because he knows that on a range, he can do anything. There's no pressure. There's no nothing on the golf course. He's got to have something that's going to work the best for what he does, for what his tendencies are. 
However, if you walk in and you're a 25 handicap, and you have no idea how to control the face, and you're using a driver that's forcing you to leave the face open, and I can help get the club face more squared, when you go out play, you're going to like, oh my gosh, I can now hit the ball straight. Correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, center of gravity has a massive influence on, on how the ball is going to fly through the right. air. Well, there was one more part we didn't talk about center of gravity is that from front to back. Yes. And I think that's the most important one, right? So the more I can move that center of gravity back, the more MOI, moment of inertia, or the more forgiveness a driver is going to have. Problem is, the more I move it back, the more it moves up on the face. The more I move it forward, the more it moves down on the face. So if you will, on a robot, and I say in a robot because robots do not swing at all like humans, but on a robot, the driver with less forgiveness but a lower center of gravity will spin less. The driver with the higher MOI factor will spin more on a robot. So this is one of the main points and really one of the things that kind of had to take me years to wrap my head around this, but every manufacturer obviously has different center of gravities in their clubs. They have different MOI because what you're alluding to is really trade-offs and engineering design. So you could talk about this like Titleist and their drivers, they have one type of design and tailor-made and talk about how much these variables in center of gravity or MOI can exist from brand to brand or even from product to product within the brand. These guys that design these guys and gals, by the way, that design golf clubs, most of them are actual rocket scientists. They come from the space programs. They're geniuses. But they realize that there are a plethora of types of players out there. So the engineering team has to choose, okay, we're going to make four driver heads. We're going to choose four different types of players that we're going to build drivers for. Are there only four players? No, there's 4,000 players. But they have to choose, and four could be a lot, right? Maybe you could only produce three. Maybe you can only produce one or two. They have to choose that player and then say, okay, well, we're going to make this for this kind of player. So player A is a high spin player, doesn't need a whole lot of forgiveness. He needs less spin. He hits the ball in the center every time. Player B hits the ball all over the face. They need as high MOI as possible. They're picking these players and every engineering team is picking it slightly differently. So they're not all playing by the same rules and nor should they. For a golfer, the great thing is now if you've got seven or eight manufacturers and each manufacturer is making three or four drivers, we've got 20 some odd choices to choose from for you as a player. When you come into me, I'm brand agnostic, right? So I'm not going to ask you what brand you want. I'm going to fit you based off what I see, what's going on. And then once I find the best club for you, I'm then going to ask, what brand would you like? And you say, oh, I was thinking about, I wasn't thinking about this brand. I was thinking about another brand. Okay, well, let's put it together and we'll set up that combination, see how it goes. And you go, oh, I don't hit that as good, but I really want, want this driver. Well, now you can make a choice. I want the brand that's going to perform the best for me, or I want the brand that the name and the look is and the feel is what I like. And there isn't a bad choice there, by the way. You, you know, you're not playing golf for a living. You're going to make a choice based on, on your enjoyment level. I think most of the time people choose a driver that's going to perform best for them, but that doesn't always, that's not always the case. You've seen what's happened with me. I mean, obviously golf manufacturers don't design clubs for my tendencies because I'm a low spin player. And 
I remember one time I went out with that club. I won't name it, <laughs> but <laughs> I just couldn't play with it because I, I couldn't get the ball up in the air. So I think one of the main points I hope people get from this is that I think all the manufacturers are making great clubs is what he said. They have, you know, tremendous resources behind them. They have geniuses designing these clubs, but they are picking for certain tendencies. And if you don't match up those tendencies properly with your swing, then you're likely leaving something on the table and making the game a bit harder for yourself. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our goal of fitting is to help you play better golf. That's different for each player, but it's to help you play. It's not to sell you a golf club. If you're going for a quote-unquote fitting and it's a selling, which unfortunately is what happens a lot, the job is to sell you something, I'm not a fan of that. Well, that's why people trust you around this area. You mentioned MOI. I think a lot of people have heard that, those three letters. Can you briefly define that for us and, and what it does in a golf club? Moment of inertia. It's resistance to twisting. That's if I hit the ball in the center of the golf club, and by the way, Folks, the center of the golf club is not the actual measured center. It's where that center of gravity comes up. So on a driver, on most drivers, if you were to put a line on what we would think with this, the vertical line, what the center of gravity would be, the center of gravity is always above that because you can't get it below it without giving up too much MOI. But the more MOI you have, the more the driver is going to resist twisting. The less MOI, the more it's going to twist and the more it's going to have more gear effect what's the trade-off then because obviously uh, otherwise you just create incredibly high moi clubs <laughs> nike tried that didn't they <laughs> yeah well so the problem is again if i move that center of gravity further back it goes up on the face what goes up on the face the center of gravity rises on the face right so the a simple terms is going to spin a lot more if i chalkboard i could show you you can't <laughs> move it back without it moving up now, that said, what are these all these engineers trying to do? They're trying to figure out, hey, how can we move it back without moving it up? We use a carbon composite How do we, in the crown to make it lighter up there so there's less weight up there. Can we lighten the driver in some place to have more weight in the back of the driver so that it won't affect it as much? The driver today versus the driver of 10 years ago is night and day different. They're all striving to do this. Now, understand something about MOI. There is a USGA cap, okay? So the USGA has caps, so the engineers have to work around these guidelines. It's not like I'm designing an iPhone and there's no USGA saying, oh, no, you can't do that. That's going to be illegal. If I can get it to be faster and I get it to be easier to use, I can make a better phone. And as you see, it's every day they make better stuff. In the golf world, the USGA and the RNA come along and say, hey, these are the rules. You've got to design it under these rules. So it's very hard. And I'm super simplifying what we're talking about here, but it's extremely hard to build a great golf club. But we have a lot of them today because these companies have bought in. They said, okay, how can we make a better product? There's one major manufacturer, won't use their name, but I want to say it's about 15 years ago, they had seven engineers designing golf clubs. And I think Six or seven years ago, they had 73. <laughs> it, it, it's a war. <laughs> it really is. We've talked a lot about gear effect on this show. And MOI 
is seeking to essentially reduce that. So for the golfer who, like me, when I strike it on the heel of the club, that's my tendency. As a right-handed golfer, that's going to impart some more slice spin on it. So MOI kind of saves that. I guess on a, on a driver 10, 20 years ago, if I struck it on the heel, it might slice quite a bit, whereas now it's a manageable miss for me. Is, is that a kind of a, a nice generic characterization? It's a great generic characterization, yes. That's you know something that Adam, one of his main philosophies in his coaching is about striking it right. So you know we often talk about spraying the driver face and, and showing golfers that what happens when you strike it on the center of the face, the driver does what it's designed to do. But I think these manufacturers are getting a lot better. You know I keep hearing the word like spin stability on off-center strikes. It seems like that's what they're focusing on more now. That's the biggest thing I noticed. I changed, I updated my driver from a 10-year-old driver recently. And in terms of spin stability, I noticed that when I catch it low on the face with this new driver, it still seems to have quite a penetrating ball flight. Whereas the old one, I'd see the ball spin ramp up and it would become a very floaty flight. So that is definitely something I've seen with this new driver, this new model from about a year ago. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make them more consistent. You could have a, a 10 or 12-year-old driver, but occasionally sometimes you can't beat it. It happens all the time, I should say. But if you don't strike the ball in the same spot every time, which most of us don't, the more stable driver is going to produce a much more consistent pattern. This is very difficult for a golfer who doesn't have access to a fitter like yourself, but essentially you're trying to find a head that has a center of gravity, a moment of inertia, and some other characteristics in its design that are matching up with the strike and swing tendencies of that player as best as possible. Because of course, the driver's not going to hit the ball for you. You're essentially trying to make people's poorer swings not as poor and maybe emphasize their strengths a bit more. I mean, that that's certainly what I've seen when I've gotten better drivers in my hands. That's exactly what we're trying to do, John. Exactly. Can we talk a, a little bit about loft? Because that's an area where I was confused for a long time. I think most golfers assume that you know a lower lofted driver is going to make them hit it farther. As simply as you can, can you talk about loft and its importance on the club face? We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. 
That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Every player is going to have an optimal launch condition for what they do. That's a player that hits down on it. They're going to have a different optimal launch conditions for someone who hits up on it at the same speed. And the myth of a, a lower loft goes further. The way I kind of put it is that let's use 10 and a half degrees. If 10 and a half degrees is optimal for you, nine and a half degrees is going to go shorter. And 11 and a half degrees is going to go shorter. 10 and a half is going to go the maximum distance that you can produce. The, you know, the air has a lot less resistance to it than the ground does. Everyone thinks roll, roll, roll. And I'm not discounting roll because especially for that lower speed player, we've got to make sure that we're, we're maximizing a roll there. But if you think that I'm playing a nine degree driver and an eight degree driver will go further, it will not. If it's properly fit, the eight degree driver is going to go shorter and a 10 degree driver is going to go shorter also. You're optimized at that nine degree. That's your launch angle. That's your spin rate with your ball speed. But it's so player dependent because if you hit down three degrees and I hit up three degrees, we're going to have totally different potential launch conditions. I'm teaching a young guy. I tell him, listen, I want you to go online. I want you to learn everything you can about D-plane. Understand it. Learn it. You need to know it. Then I'm going to tell you why it's not relevant. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I liken this back to as a young kid going to college engineering school and the professor's telling you, okay, here's this formula that you're going to have to use. We're going to break the formula down. We've got the formula. Why do I have to break it down? Plug the numbers in. It will tell me what I need to know. Well, if you don't understand how the formula works, which is the biggest problem I think today, people don't understand how the formula works. They don't understand why it popped out this number. So you need to understand how the formula works. You need to understand the science of ball flight from a D-plane standpoint, to then understand that, wait a minute, we're hitting it three millimeters above the center of gravity and six millimeters left of the center of gravity. That D-plane's out the window. But if you don't understand it, it's hard to, you can't explain it properly to someone simply. Yeah, D-plane's much easier with irons where the face is flat and there's not as much gear effect. But once off-center strikes come in with the driver and the head is bigger and the center of mass is farther back from the face, then those D-plane concepts are a lot more, a lot trickier. Yes. So let's say someone goes online or walks into the uh, Dick's Sporting Goods or wherever, and they're like, oh, I'm going to buy a nine and a half degree driver. That's the loft I need. 
Can you explain why a nine and a half degree, and we've done this test, you and me, where I've hit different lofts on different heads and they've launched completely differently, different launch angles, different spin rates, so different you know distances. Can you explain why nine and a half degrees is not a standard on any club, really? Multiple things, John. First of all, let's assume that they measure nine and a half degrees. All these drivers measure nine and a half degrees. Where is that center of gravity? What is that MOI number that we talked about earlier, right? So if I have nine and a half degree driver that's got, assuming you hit the ball in the center of face, it's got a lower center of gravity, it might launch the ball much higher than a driver with a higher center of gravity, which is going to launch it lower, but spin it a lot more. I always tell people, I can give you, I'm going to skip to wedges for a second. I can give you three wedges. All are 50 degrees. One is going to go 120. One is going to go 110. And one is going to go 100. And they're going to get there completely different, three different, completely different ways. But they're all going to be measured at 50 degrees. It's where, how the design, where the center of gravity of the golf club is. Number two is when you see nine and a half on the driver, you assume that it actually is nine and a half. Well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you, <laughs> folks, it's probably not nine and a half. It's probably a lot more than nine and a half. While it's gotten better over the years... These companies know, you know, listen, uh, th this player, he's, he's got to say nine on it because he thinks he hits it way too high. But we know he really needs ten and a half degrees. So we'll put nine in the bottom. We'll make it ten and a half degrees. <laughs> We're exposing some dark secrets of the industry here. I've heard a little anecdote of, uh, I think it was Lee Westwood. I don't know what, the truth of this, but he hits it very, very low and... I think they gave him like a 12 or 13 degree head or something, but they had it stamped like eight or seven on the bottom because yeah. he, did, he didn't want to use a, a loft that was that high. You know, that's really important, right? So golf is such an emotional game. If I tell you, you stink, I don't want to stink. I want to be better. So if someone's perception is that I can't play a 12 degree driver because that means I stink, we got to get him somehow something that says 10 and a half on the bottom. So... They don't think that they, even though it's not relevant at all, it's an emotional part of the game, which is critical. I was walking around with a 12 and a half degree driver for four years. It worked just fine for me. <laughs> You're a little open, open mind. <laughs> me and John would be very different in how, in how we get fit because John's a, a low, lower spin player, aren't you, John? And I really need a lower spin generally. I launch the ball about 17 degrees in the air, sometimes up to 19. And that's with a seven-degree driver, if it is indeed seven degrees. So, yeah, we're always looking for different things, or we'd be very different in our fitting, I think. Very different. So most modern drivers you can adjust now. Can you quickly tell people why they should not be playing around with those settings all the time? <laughs> okay, so if I went to get fit, it's like me going to my doctor and saying, I'll take this medication, 10 milligrams. Are you going to go home and go, well, you know, I, I didn't feel so good today. I'm going to cut that back to eight milligrams. Let me cut a little bit off that. Uh, you know, I didn't feel so good today. I'm going to take 12 milligrams of that. You're adjusting something just by how you felt, not with any clear data. I tell people when I fit them all the time, listen, this, I'm going to set this driver up for you. What's going to work best for you? You're like, come back. Let me check. Let me make those adjustments. Let the doctor make those adjustments. I see golfers all the time on a range. They got the wrench out. They're changing stuff. They don't really understand what they're changing. They're testing with range balls. So gosh knows what results they are actually going to get 
totally different when you use a real golf ball on the golf course. So, you know, folks, you should keep your hand <laughs> off the wrench. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have one in my bag just in case the thing pops out, but that's the only reason I have it, just in case it, it popped out in a tournament. <laughs> Got to have the, I wish you have to have that wrench in your bag because, yep. listen, those things can come, come loose and you want to be able to tighten it. Yeah, I've had a few weights come loose and you got to tighten them back up. But yeah, I would I would caution people from constantly, I always liken it to changing lanes in a traffic jam. You're not going to end up anywhere. Those things don't necessarily work the way you think they're going to work. Yeah, that too. Yep. Yeah, you could start moving around the weight from the, the heel to the toe. And you explained before about how shifting the center of gravity has a lot of nuance on how the club twists or closes or opens more. So you're playing around with something that you fully don't understand the consequences of. Correct. When you see adjustable drivers, right? So I've got a driver, oh, I can move the weight from the heel to the toe. You know, when you do that, you're sacrificing something from a design standpoint because you've got to put weight, maybe where you don't want to put it to make it that piece not fly off, that weight not fly off. You've got to reinforce it, put a, maybe a track or something there. And there's trade-offs to those things. So... Just because a driver is adjustable does not mean it's better. Because it's not adjustable doesn't mean it's worse. They're all trying to do different things. That's a great point. So when you and I have discussed shafts, similar things come up. Getting the length correct, the weight, the profile. I've heard people say like, oh, well, it's all about the shaft with the driver. If you don't get the right shaft, you know, you're doomed. How much influence, generically speaking, do you think the shaft has more influence than the head or vice versa, or they're equally influenceable? Okay, so what's on driver here? Yes. You can do a lot more stuff with head. I am producing ball flight results with head. I am not producing ball flight results with shaft. Your head is where the rubber meets the road, okay? Your shaft is your transmission. I am not going to, oh, I want a higher launching shaft because guy hits it low. I could do that with loft. Way more effective, way more easy. I want to use shaft for repeatability. I want to find a shaft that's going to help someone find the center of the golf club on a more frequent basis. I think this is the biggest myth in the golf shaft business of this is a high launch shaft. High launch shaft for who? <laughs> well, yeah, we talked about dirty secrets and you've kind of educated me on that. The, the shaft industry seems like it's some back alley <laughs> dirty business because it's not what you think it is for most people listening. The problem is, John, is that, is that if you do your testing on a robot, yes, it's a high launch shaft. But when I put that shaft in your hands and you feel that bottom of that shaft kicking, you hold it off. And a lot of times it comes a lower launching shaft because you hold it off more. I put in Adam's hands and Adam lets it go and it, and it does kick it higher. That's why it's player specific. But if I, as a fitter, can give you a shaft that is going to be repeatable for your swing, then you're going to play your best golf. Generic real quick, three major parts to shaft. Most important thing is weight. Okay. Just by the way, just because your shaft says 65 does not mean it's 65 grams. It could be 73 grams. Okay, just because it says 40 on it does not mean it's 40 grams. It's not 40 grams. Number two is flex. Again, for me, flex is defined by the area under the EI curve. I know it spoke Greek to you guys, but it's the amount that the entire shaft is bending. And this is very important. And number three is the profile, where the shaft bends. 
And why number three and number two are so important is that if I gave you a shaft that had equal bend throughout the shaft, what I'm going to call a flatline shaft, that is going to feel really stiff because there's no part of the shaft that's bending. I give you a shaft that's got a softer part. Maybe that's up by the hands. Maybe it's down by the bottom. The same shaft that are theoretically the same flex are going to feel completely different. This feels really weak, but it's the same flex, but you can feel where it's moving. You also, you forgot, I think the most important thing, number four, is the quality of the paint job. How pretty is it? <laughs> That's number one, isn't it? Right? It's, it's yeah. the color I, mean, I like. It's all about the color and the paint job, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you say the shafts don't always get a low spin shaft or something like that, or a low launching shaft, say you gave that to a hundred golfers, what percentage wouldn't it work for? And in the cases where it doesn't work or even does the opposite of what it says on the tin, is that a, the player is doing something different or it's just, it, it doesn't fit what they're doing. So maybe their force and torque profile in their swing is just not matching that. Does that question make sense? The simple answer to your question is probably it's not going to work right for 80%. Oh, wow. I mean, it's really hard to say, but I think it's it's way more than you think mm -hmm. it's not going to work properly for because it's not providing them to hit the ball. A lot of times those quote-unquote launching shafts, guys tend to hit them lower on the face, spins a lot more. Well, it's supposed to be lower launching, lower spinning, but it's not because they hit it lower on the face. So it's all working together. Yes, <laughs> yes. Talk about weight really quickly. Like, why would you put a very light shaft in one player's hands, or why would you go heavier for another player? And how does that affect ball flight? It's more about tempo and repeatability, right? So, I'll give you an example. We could have someone who's 70 years old. We, I said all the time, 70 years old, who needs a real heavy shaft because they're so quick. Their tempo is so quick and so short that they can't feel where the golf club is. Then I could have someone who's, who's 30 years old and but they've got this super slow, smooth tempo. I can't make it light enough for that person. And based on generics, the, the conventional wisdom would be to do the opposite, right? You know, the older player has to have the lightest shaft possible, as most people would assume that, correct? Correct. Correct. That's the marketing. Yeah. As much as I want to educate people at the same time, I know we are opening up a can of worms here. And it, it, it's, it's one of the reasons why I often tell people that if you can work with a qualified club fitter, you should, because there are a lot of variables here. You know, when we talk about what golfers assume about what they should buy, and they often buy it sight unseen, or just they read an article online, like, oh, I need a heavier shaft. And then they go buy it, and it might not be the right one for them. So is there anything else on weight that pops out in your head is one of the more important things? A little bit do it length. I'm making it shorter. I'm making it longer. I might want to go lighter or heavier, mm -hmm. lighter if I'm going longer, sh heavier if I'm going shorter in many cases, but not always hard and fast rules. So you might have something where you do the opposite. And let's talk about length a little bit. I mean, we made two major changes with my game. I went to a 44-inch shorter shaft for years, and I think that saved me. I used to be really a horrible <laughs> driver of the golf ball, and you kind of saved me when you put me in the shorter shaft. And then years later, when I learned to control that, now I'm on the on the 47 inch shaft, and I'm hitting it better than ever. So it busted a few myths in my head going back, and now I'm playing both of them at the same time. But what are your thoughts? I know there's no right 
length for each player, but the industry has pushed people into longer shafts. Like what's your thinking now on, on driver shaft length? It's always been the same thing. It's all over the place, depending on the player. You're a different kind of player, right? So so we could not have given you 47 and a half inches when we first started. Your swing would not have allowed it. You would have snapped it. Now your your swing has gotten to a level. Your game has gotten to a different level. Your needs are different. So you need something different. You're trying to play competitive golf. We know that distance is the key ingredient for you. And if we were able to get that without sacrificing accuracy, in fact, maybe we might have gotten it more accurate. We did. Because... Because you're, because you're not trying to jump at it and swing out of your shoes every single time. There could be a lot of reasons. So it's so dependent on each individual player as to where we do. Give me an example of a player who walks through your door who you'd say, oh, I want to go shorter shaft with this player. Why would you do that in certain circumstances? I can't get him to find the center of the golf club on any kind of repeatability at all with the longer shaft. And I'm going to make it shorter. I'm able to find them to center the golf club on more consistent basis. And that doesn't always Simple. hold up for every player. I mean, I'm no, sure no, 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 yeah, no, 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 sure no, 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 no. Sometimes it's the opposite. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. you make it shorter and they can't find the center of face. There are not hard and fast rules here. I was going to say, is that more the art part? You, you don't know until you test it, basically, what someone's going to perform better with in that regard? Yes. And obviously it's experience of going, oh, this guy's got a lot of lag. Oh, he's going to have a really hard time with a longer shaft. Uh, this person's got a much more rounded swing. Uh, I can probably have a more success, but you still have to test and prove it because you could have that person that you think, you know, those are the hardest ones where you go, this should work and it doesn't work. And then you got to figure out why it doesn't work. What is standard driver shaft now? 45 and a half, 46 inches or most OEM sending on stock shafts. I hate that word standard. There are no standards, John. <laughs> 45 and a half, I would think is the, yeah, my standard is still 45 inches, Yep. but the industry is probably 45 and a half. Because they want to give people a little more club head speed, correct? Is that what they're trying to push? Yes, but it doesn't always work that way. Yep. We both learned a lot when we went through that, the driver shaft experiment with the length and I, you know, talking with Callaway and some of the engineers at Acura that you connected me with, like, it's just, it's just so wild to me that there's no formula that works for any player. Like you say, you don't know until you test and you have the right equipment to measure it so you can make an educated guess and saying like, okay, I think maybe this golfer can handle the longer shaft. Um, it will get them some more club head speed without sacrificing, you know, strike location, face angle. Can they control it versus someone else who, you know, if you gave me that shaft six years ago, I would have hit it all over the map. I think it's the beauty of golf, right? I mean, Adam can talk to this from an instructor standpoint, but I, I talk about it all the time when someone asks me about instruction. You know, there is no right way to swing the golf club. There's no right way to hold the golf club. There's what works for you and your body. For one player, when Adam is working on that, he's going to have them do one thing and then player B could come in and he could have do something completely different because their body works in a completely different way. Yeah, my players never look the same. I know enough about to that to be dangerous. I once asked one of the, the great teaching pros I know, you know, what's your philosophy? He goes... I don't have philosophy. I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm trying to get you, the people to play better golf, and that's different for each player. And it's the same thing in club fitting. Is every player is different. Every player has different needs and different wants, and we've got to listen to them. We've got to see what they're doing, and we've got to try and help them play better golf. One of the other big myths that I always think has to be talked about is the flex. 
you've educated me that one company's quote unquote regular could be another one stiff. Some golfers think, oh, I swing 105 miles per hour. I need the extra, extra stiff. Talk a little bit about shaft flex in terms of like the dirty secrets of the industry and and why a high swing speed player sometimes doesn't need an extra stiff shaft or vice versa. This line I use all the time, the shaft does not know how fast it's going. So I'll simplify this. Let's say we have an 80 mile an hour club head speed player and the 80 mile an hour club head speed player, player A has his big long swing, comes way past parallel, and a real smooth swing, and they create 80 miles an hour. Player B also creates 80 miles an hour, but they bring it back halfway. Player B is going to apply a lot more force to that shaft to get it to 80 miles an hour in half the space of time than player A. They can't play the same flex, but they're both swinging the club at the same speed. Speed is something you should really not be looking at when it comes to flex. You just angered a lot of people, I'm sure. <laughs> That's okay. That's what we're here to do. Well, speed is just down at the bottom, right? But it doesn't tell you, you know, the change of direction or the force during the change of direction or how smoothly or aggressively they're accelerating it throughout the rest of the swing. So, yeah, I can see why that makes sense. You know, Freddie Couples, one, one time he had a three-wood that he was using, right? And... He hit that three with amazing. And they cut the grip off and it said regular underneath it. He was like, I can't hit this. Well, he didn't put a lot of load in the shaft. He didn't need really stiff shaft. Nick Price, similar era, right? Similar guy. He couldn't get it stiffer. He used to build clubs in his his basement, tip the hell out of them, make them as stiff as he possibly could. Why? Because he had a real short, quick swing and he was putting a tremendous amount of load on the on the golf shaft. And Fred Couples had one of the highest, I mean, he was one of the longest drivers of his era. He had the whole boom, boom campaign. His swing speed was tremendous. Yes, but he did it with smooth acceleration. I even feel that when I, in terms of the adapting that I talked about earlier, when I used to pick up a ladies club in demonstrating and I would automatically just smooth out the tempo a lot. I would feel all the speed at the bottom instead. So really smooth transition. So yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. Good players can do that. And why don't you talk about the lack of standards in the shaft? I mean, this will come up on multiple episodes we talked to you about, whether it's irons, wedges, hybrids, whatever. But can you just tell people about the lack of standards in the shaft industry? I mean, really, it's the Wild West in the shaft industry. One company says our shaft is a low kick, and I measure it using the same machine under the same conditions as every other manufacturer. And I'm like, on a robot, this would not be anything near a low kick because maybe for them, it is a low kick. And for another company, a shaft they say is a high kick is a low kick. I'm using that word kick because that's what people understand from the marketing standpoint, but that is not reality. There is no one place. There's no kick point. There's no one magical point in the shaft. The entire shaft bends. So I'm looking at it for an EI curve, which means simply, I'm looking how the shaft bends from the butt through the tip, and I'm looking how, how it bends on a graph. The one last thing, John, about shaft that I think is really important is, well, why is this one shaft $500 and this shaft's stock? Yeah, I got a lot of questions on Twitter about aftermarket versus stock, so please go ahead. <laughs> The most important thing is consistency. If I get most, not all, but most more expensive shafts are made with better ingredients and they have a better chef making that 
product. Every graphite shaft you're going to use is going to be made by hand, folks. It's not made by, there's only one manufacturer that makes their shafts on a machine. Every other one is made by hand. Well, who is making it and how many do they have to make per day? The person that's got that better chef that's making less, but trying to make more quality, they're going to be more consistent. If I've got higher grade materials, meaning the materials are more consistent, I can get a more consistent result. So if I measure 10 of shaft A, that's a $500 shaft, it's going to be more consistent. Does that make it better? It doesn't make it better if it's not right for you. So wait there, you're talking about consistency between shafts. So say you get an X-Flex in, I can't even think of a shaft brand name, an Aldilo or something, an X-Flex, and then you get another one. You get another one that's supposed to be exactly the same. So they're going to be closer if it's aftermarket than if it's not. You're not talking about a single shaft is going to produce more consistent results for a player, are you? That's correct. Right. Okay. It's more of a quality assurance issue. Yeah. Is okay. Right. To. So if your shaft breaks, basically, you're more likely to get something that better fits what you had before. Correct. Let's take, for example, a quote unquote stock shaft. You could have a stock shaft that's perfect for you. And by the way, there's not reason why you can't play a stock shaft. We fit plenty of them. Okay, so folks, don't think, oh, I can't. Stock shafts are no good. They are good for a certain person who have what they need, but there's a consistency issue. For a lot of players, let's say for both of you two, right? I'm going to fit you into shaft A. I need to know that when I'm giving you that shaft in your club, it's the same thing. Your ability and the levels you're playing at is much higher. If I'm fitting a, I'm a, let's just say 25 handicap, and I get in the right zone, well, if it's not perfect, it's going to be close enough to make good results for them, and they don't have to spend three to five hundred dollars more. They might want to, and I might explain to them, well, this is what you can do, and it will be exactly what I'm fitting you for, as opposed to this other one. It's, I'm kind of rolling the dice a little bit here. But I think it's okay to roll a dice. It's all about playing percentages, what's going to work best for the player. If you saw how some of the real inexpensive shafts are made, you wouldn't want to use it unless you've got that one and you're using it, but you better hope it doesn't break. So basically each shaft is its own individual, its own thumbprint, unless you get an aftermarket shaft and then the thumbprints, you can make them more similar. In most cases, not all the time. Sometimes there's marketing involved. What about torque? Torque is a, a really bad number. It's a really bad number. You can have a high torque shaft that, guys, this, this shaft feels like it's really tight. And you can have a low torque shaft that people, this thing feels wobbly. What's it supposed to do in the swing? That's something I don't know. It's twisting. Imagine if you held the grip on your head, grip in one hand and your head in the other hand, and you try to rotate the head with holding the grip steady mm -hmm. okay you're torquing the shaft how does it affect the results for a player that's a great question and i don't think there's a great answer i talked to uh shasta mckenzie many years ago they had a great test with comparing with good players comparing torque and what you would think happened is the opposite of what happened you think that the lower torque shaft would go more to the right and the higher torque shaft would go more to the left. And that's what might happen on a robot. That is not what happened in his study. Huh. 
that was what I would expect, but does it influence face presentation consistency? It can, but it's, it's so far down on my list that I'm not super concerned with it because the difference between 2.8 degrees and 3.2 degrees, there's so many other factors that come into play. So for example, if I, I need, I want a softer tip, I'm going to have to have probably a little more torque. I can't not have it. If you want to talk about things that are important in shaft, hoop retention, hoop strength is way more important. How does a shaft resist ovaling is way more important than torque. But nobody talks about that. No one knows what that is because it's impossible to market, but I can market torque. All right. So concluding on the shaft part, you're looking to get the right length, the right weight, the right profile to enable a golfer to deliver the club head more consistently. You'd say to most people that getting the head right is you know, center of gravity, moment of inertia, loft, getting that all dialed in is step one. And then finding the shaft that accommodates that head and that, that delivery method to kind of tighten things up there. But that doesn't mean that's how I'm going to fit, though, John. No, I understand. I'm just saying, like... Because I, I, I may do shaft first because I'm trying to find something that I can get you to find that center of face first and then sure. go to head. I keep coming across people who get so obsessed with shafts. I've never really given much thought to it myself. That's why I rely on you. Making, like, that's the end-all, be-all of a driver fitting because you get people who, like, collect these very expensive shafts and you've kind of let people know that they don't necessarily have to spend all that money. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not. But I'm, I'm glad you cleared up some of the, the myths around shafts and what's truly important. Here's another question I got on Twitter, which is always kind of a hot button in the industry just because... Let's face it, the driver costs the most money. It's the entree into a lot of golfers' bags. So there's a lot of marketing dollars invested and there's a lot of market share at stake. Obviously, the OEMs are releasing new drivers every year, trying to convince golfers that this one's better, this one's better, this one's better. What's a good rule of thumb for, let's say you got properly dialed in with the driver, you got the right head, you got the right shaft. Based on the trends you're seeing in the industry, how long should that last before someone would see a meaningful change on the golf course with a technology change? Good golf club should last, John. You should not be trying a new driver every year, every two years, every three years. I have players that come to my net with a driver that I fit them 10 years ago, and I tell them, do not buy a new driver. You're not going to get anything better. If it's properly fit, it should last. Now, listen, if you make a big swing change... My standard answer that probably is seven to 10 years. That's my, if you're going to put a, a time on it, seven to 10 years. It doesn't mean for one player it couldn't be two years, another player it couldn't be 15, but golf clubs should last. Properly fit, good golf clubs should last. Yeah, my old driver was 12 years old. And, uh, you know, I was re reluctant to change it because the numbers were optimized. I'm launching it 17 degrees, I'm spinning it about 1800 RPMs. And the ball speed, the smash factor was 1.5. So it's like, well, what am I going to get out of a new driver? The only the only reason I changed it in the end was that spin stability thing I talked about. So on my old one, you know, I'd hit it a little low on the face. And, you know, at my launch angle, you don't want high spin. So this one just, it's basically, I, I changed it for the off-center strikes that I hit. Anytime I hit it low on the face, now it, it holds the spin rate much better. Yeah, which was really going to be kind of like one of my final questions for you. 
it seems like we're kind of tapped out on distance. Like there are rules in place and they can't get around them much anymore. Do you think like the future of driver technology is more optimizing for those off-center strikes? Because let's face it, that's what most golfers, you know, the pros certainly don't struggle with that, but mortal golfers do. Do you think that's where things will continue to go with technology? I mean, what's your prediction for where where drivers are going to go? I think that they can't get them to go any further. Perfect center hit on a robot, we can't get it to go further. But we knew that five years ago, and today's driver compared to five years ago driver is way more consistent. Most people, even the tour pros, they don't hit the ball. I mean, Ping did a test where they had their tour pros hitting a, a, a uh, driver 20 times. It was the size of a quarter strike location. Yep. A tour player, size of a quarter. Well, that's why they're so focused on swing speed now, because, you know, that's <laughs> that's how they're going to increase their distance. They have to train their bodies to move faster. The average golfer is using the whole face. So, yeah, that's why I, I, I still think you and I have talked about the home run swing. You don't fit golfers for the home run swing, meaning when they hit it perfectly. I'm around a ton of golfers who I see them hitting it. You know, they're let's say they're driving at 210, 220 yards. And a lot of that has to do with not striking the golf face properly the way they're delivering the club. And, you know, if they optimize spin and launch conditions with newer technology, that realistically could give players another 10 or 20 yards. So that's still a decent amount of juice to be squeezed there, do you think? I do. These companies, these engineers are just getting better and better and better. And it's gotten better. It's going to get better. But if you think that every year you can go buy a new driver and hit it 15 yards longer, you're mistaken. Well, that's why I had you on here because not a lot of people in the industry would have the confidence to say that. You know, as someone who, you know, you sell golf clubs for a living and you fit golfers for a living to say that, I think takes a lot of honesty and, and humility. So thank you for being so honest. Any other major thoughts, questions for Woody before we start wrapping things up here? No, I'm good. Are we, we going to have Woody back on to discuss irons and things like that? Yeah, we're going to okay, do cool. uh, you know, my my plan over the next 10 to 15 years of this podcast <laughs> is to have Woody on and talk about I'm 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 being a little facetious here, but <laughs> we're, we're, you know, as Woody's schedules permits, I certainly want to tackle irons. We want to talk about hybrids, we want to talk about wedges, putters. Uh we could do a whole episode on shafts. We could deep dive into just center of gravity. So there, there's a lot to talk about. And I think this is like a little bit of a, a teaser. So John, I will have, have be back as often as you guys want to have me. All those Twitter things. The one thing I saw that I, and, I, and it's got to be a whole separate episode is how does a club fitter work with a teacher? Mm. And mm. I think that's something that me and Adam can really get into. And uh, we could talk about. When I first started practical golf, it was before, our, I mean, I'd actually have been fit by Pete your partner, Pete Mikowski, when I was in my early 20s and, you know, kind of forgotten about the experience. And when I first started practical golf, I had a little chip on my shoulder about equipment. I was like, ah, you know, it's all BS, the club fitting stuff. And then, you know, when you and I start working together and we've spent many, many hours, you've been very generous with your time and I've seen it in my own game and, and all the other testing we've done. You're becoming a better golfer, which is really the context of this show is a lot of the stuff that Adam and I talk about, impact, fundamental, strategy, mental game. I do think equipment's a huge part of that equation. I always put it at like 15%. I don't know if Woody would agree or disagree with me. I think the quality of your equipment could have as much influence as 15 to 20% of your scores. That's just my gut feeling. I could be completely wrong. I can never prove it. 
But I went from someone who didn't really believe in equipment that much to someone who's like, well, people got to learn about this stuff. So that's why I wanted to have Woody on here. So Woody, any any other closing thoughts about drivers before we send you off? We'll get into that more that 15, 20% conversation <laughs> on, a, uh, on, a, on a different day. You're probably I think like it could fuming be from, right now. It, no, that. no, no. Well, John, it could be from zero yeah, be, to 100. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Depending it's, on the skill it's, of the it's, player. There's no, yeah. And what they what they have. You're right. There's so many variables. Anyways, let's wrap it up there. Woody, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I think we'll we'll probably do irons next time, whenever your your schedule permits, in the next maybe month or two. And always, anyone who wants to, let me give Woody a plug here because he's not going to do it for himself. Go to Pete'sGolf.com, check them out. They're in Mineola, New York, which is about what thirty miles east of New York City. People from all over the world travel to get fit by Woody and his partners there. So if you want this done properly, I know not everyone has access to a fitter where they live, but if you are heading around the New York metro region, go see them. They are the best. Woody, thanks again, and thanks to everyone for listening. Adam, any any plugs for yourself, or you just want to? I'm good. Just go the sunset here. <laughs> yeah, I got some pork belly on the go at the moment. It's uh, it's going to be burning soon, but. Yeah, just adamyounggolf.com. Check out blog. Check out all the free articles, freebies, stuff like that. And John, you? You can always find me at practical-golf.com. Thanks again for everyone listening, and we will see you next time.